Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. The invention of a new product is only one step in the innovation process. The next challenge is how do you get them into the right hands at the right time? This is a problem that is front and center in healthcare. Today, I talk with Dr. Isaac Turner, the Chief Technology Officer and a co-founder of Curative. We explore their model, the trade-offs between utility and cost, and try to understand the barriers to adoption for a new solution. During his career, Dr. Turner has developed algorithms for interpreting whole genome sequencing data, helped Curative scale its lab and field operations to provide over 36 million COVID PCR tests, and oversaw the launch of Curative's COVID vaccine program, which completed over 2 million immunizations. He's passionate about using technical innovation to improve the patient experience and scaling these processes. Previously at an A16Z backed biotech startup, Dr. Turner helped establish a clinical lab which offered novel antibiotic susceptibility tests. He holds a PhD in bioinformatics from Oxford in DNA sequence analysis. Isaac, welcome to the Austin X podcast. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me on. So, Curative kind of first burst onto the scene with your COVID testing service. You guys have now pivoted into health insurance. That's a bit of a jump. Can you walk me through that kind of that thought process and then how you actually executed such a drastic shift? Curative scaled up really fast in the first year. We went from seven people to 7,000 to build a company to respond to people's healthcare needs in the middle of a pandemic. There's no guide or book about how to do that. And a lot of what we did, we did by just every day bringing in really smart people, talking to the people we served, talking to community leaders, asking how we can deliver healthcare to them, meet their needs in, in a better way. And it started with COVID testing. We ended up running three labs operating 24-7, providing testing around the clock, and did over 36 million PCR tests in those labs. But we also realized the team we had was really well positioned to help deliver vaccines to many of these communities we were serving. And so we launched a vaccine program and got the first doses of Moderna um, into LA and delivered them to nursing homes. That, that project really grew and we ended up vaccinating over 2 million times. So Curative, by year two, year three, had a lot of experience working with partners, community partners and the people we serve and understanding how to build processes that scale up and meet their needs, understand their hesitation or why their needs are not being met by the healthcare system that they usually work with and delivering fantastic experiences for them. So obviously coming through COVID, that, that was a need that was going to go away. We were optimistic about that from day one. We thought it was going to be something we did for two months and then maybe a year and then we ended up doing it for, for three years. But we always knew it was going to come to an end. And at the end of it, we really had a great team. We had a good understanding of what it meant to deliver meaningful healthcare experiences to people. And we had a great mission of really helping people get the care that they need in a way that is appropriate for them. So we, we set about looking for how we could improve healthcare in a bigger way in the US. We'd operated in, I think, almost every state by, by the end of COVID. And 
we looked at the, the healthcare system and the structures that existed within it, you can go into primary care, you can go into specialist care, you can target a single disease or a group of patients with a particular need and deliver a, a solution for them. What we realized is that the payer, the insurance companies, there's a very small group of them, and they wield a lot of influence over the way the healthcare is delivered in the US. And a lot of the source of the frustrations of people seeking care can be tied back to the insurance company's behaviors. Just a little bit. A little bit, yes, yes. And I think one of the problems in, in the US is that it's, it's a quite fragmented healthcare system. Lots of different groups that all work together to deliver care, to look after people. And the, the payer, the insurance company, is sort of the glue that connects that whole network together. And if they're not your, your ally helping you navigate that system, it really becomes very frustrating. It falls apart very, very fast. The other thing is that there's been a long-term trend in, in health plans where the what is called the, the member cost share, the co-pays, the deductibles, the co-insurance, it's become more complex and it's increased the amount of out-of-pocket costs to seek health care every year. And although that leads to short-term savings, because people don't go to the, the seek health care, they go to the doctor if they think they're going to have to pay for it, the long-term costs of that are that people are deferring care so that they're becoming less healthy, outcomes are becoming worse, and the costs to treat those illnesses down the road are increasing. Yeah. It's a very inefficient approach to defer preventative care. Preventative care is the most cost-effective form of care. It's the one that keeps you healthiest. It's most affordable. It's why we're encouraged to get things like flu vaccines every year. It's why we always have that conversation about we have sick care, not health care, right? It's a, it's a great tagline, but the question is, how do you actually implement it? Exactly. When you look at the barriers, why do people not go? It's because their health insurance is a complex uh, financial instrument, really. They don't understand what it's going to cost. And there's been some work to increase the transparency around pricing. But what we really realized is we need a bold plan, a health plan that just uh, can tell members that they will not have to pay out of pocket. Well, if you do that, if you can meet that, if you can make that promise and meet that promise, you can unlock, uh, you can really enable people to get care. And I think getting out of people's way so that they can advocate for themselves, so they can go and get care without fear of surprise bills, um, without getting confused, about trying to you know, navigate cost transparency tooling, it, it, it can have a huge effect. And I, and I think that's where we started with the promise of if we are able to become a health payer, we could begin to change many parts of the system. So we had a lot of data. We you know, build insurance 20 million times uh, during COVID. We'd, we'd worked with many people. We'd, we'd addressed many of their concerns about trying to understand their insurance and if they could get a COVID test or a vaccine and reassure them they wouldn't be charged. So we understood a lot about what it meant to be a provider in the system. And that gave us a lot of help understanding the challenges that the payers need to overcome. We saw a lot of very poorly run in health insurance plans during COVID, ones that would really struggle to implement the CARES Act properly that said, no, you're not allowed to bill patients uh, for COVID testing and COVID vaccinations, ones that would you know, really struggle to pay bills on time. And we thought we could do a much better job than them. So as we've seen health insurance is not a new business and you guys are coming into this fresh, 
given your experience, you just said with, with the COVID testing and vaccines. So is that the fundamental innovation is the no copays, the no deductibles? And does that apply? I noticed you also didn't say no co-insurance. Does that apply across the board? So is every procedure, is everything all-inclusive? So is every surgery, is every doctor visit, is everything that occurs no out-of-pocket? Yes, I will explain the plan. I think there's more to it than no co-pays, no deductibles, no co-insurance, no really. But we ask every member to do a baseline visit within the first 120 days. And that baseline visit is 30 minutes with their care navigator who will stick with them throughout the year and 30 minutes with a clinician, um, nurse practitioner or, or a physician. And the point of that visit is to really understand the health goals for the member and where they have gaps in their, their needs. Because we want to get ahead of those. Because for the rest of the year, we are aligned. And we are deeply invested in them being healthy. And, and they're also deeply invested in themselves being healthy. And so that baseline visit is our opportunity to really understand their needs, goals, frustrations, help un- fill in any um, gaps in knowledge they might have about how to seek care and use the plan to its uh, best benefit. I think, I think the other thing is just convincing the people, really, you can use healthcare now and you're not going to get a bill. So they have to complete that, that baseline visit. And then if they do that in the first 120 days, um, in-network care has um, no cost sharing. So uh, we have a network of about a million providers and you know, it's uh, care navigators are there to help you navigate within that, that network um, and get the care you need. It doesn't work if you just say it's it's uh, this cost sharing gone away now and go at it the baseline visit is core part of making sure that together with members we are getting ahead of any needs they have and that um, they're engaging in care um, preventative care actively and who is the care navigator what is their is it a, is it a nurse is it a nurse practitioner is it a what is this person care navigators are non-clinical so they really think of it like um, your executive assistant or your contact at a, you know, they're your, your point of contact at Curative. And they're there to help connect all the dots for you to run down, um, to make sure you can get an appointment, to chase down, well, you know, any issues you might be having, to make sure that referrals don't just fall into a black hole, that prescriptions don't disappear. You know, sometimes the connections between, as I mentioned before, the very fragmented system in the US that those gaps are, are being connected so that your care journey is a continuous one and doesn't sort of fall apart. We all know of the, you know, you see a doctor and, and you leave and you were given a referral, but you're not really sure where or how to make the next appointment. And that's a stumbling block. That's where addressing a health problem early can fall apart. Or if the prescription is sent to the wrong pharmacy and you can't pick it up and you really struggle there. Those are Opportunities for care navigators to um, to step in and and do the, the legwork for you to make sure that the barriers to getting care, to completing a course of treatment or whatever, are removed and that you can have a more fluid experience trying to um, do what people really want to do, which is get themselves healthy. And these are these are full time staff at Curative. Yep. yep. So how do you? How do you think about one of the things that I've seen a lot is these navigators, coaches, I've seen them a lot at different telehealth types of companies. And I understand in health insurance, it's a little bit different, right? But 
what I've seen interesting is a lot of these kind of companies will hire these type of people to do exactly what you said in a variety of forms, right? Whether it's I'm navigating your health through weight loss, through the process in that. And one of the things that I've noticed is as soon as you hit hard times, you, you, the company in this case, right? That tends to be the first positions that get cut because it doesn't scale very well. So how do you think about that? Especially since it's such a key part of the curative value proposition, how are you going to be able to continue to scale up? Is it so labor intensive, right? Is, I don't know what the ratio is that you see from members to, you know, care navigator, but what are the things that you can think about to be able to scale it efficiently so that when, as any, you know, as any company goes through, you know, recessionary environments or whatever, that you can maintain that or increase productivity so that that isn't where things will fall down and need to be cut. And then that becomes a, you know, a scary do loop, right? I do think the care navigator role pays for itself very quickly. You know, if you look at the gaps in care and how costly it can be for someone to not have a follow-up appointment or not to refill their prescription because they've got concerns about how to do that, or if they have concerns about it being the right drug, or if someone doesn't like their primary care doctor and they just stop going and no one follows up to them. I think there's, there's a clear cost in those small frictions in the healthcare system that if you can overcome them, not too much time from someone who's really knowledgeable about navigating healthcare and has worked with all the providers who knows the challenges that members see. I think um, that's actually not that um, expensive. The other thing is I think over time we can build better technology to, to overcome, automate, build self-service, you know, catch, better design our, our digital services so that members are more empowered and enabled themselves. The care navigator is always there but they don't need them as often. And some people prefer, certainly in the younger generation, for not to have to pick up the phone and talk to someone. And so I think building both is, is very important. And making care navigators uh, very effective through data and um, machine learning, AI, helping them know which members might be struggling so that we don't necessarily need members to reach out to us to say, help, I'm stuck. Um, care navigators can notice when a member is having a difficult period and we might need to be there for them. I think there are lots of things we can do there, but I, I don't think it's, um, uh, again, this is not sort of a, like a luxury plan that's not sustainable. Like the, the whole point is that if we remove barriers to care, if we make it a really natural experience for people and to get the care they need, long-term they'll be healthier and their costs will come down. I think that's, I think, at the core of Curative's mission. So you're not the first kind of, new health insurance, insure tech, whatever term we want to use to kind of try to tackle this space. There's obviously a lot of the bigs, you know, Anthem, Blue Cross have been around for a long time. I think that probably the most famous recent one is, you know, Oscar Health, right? And it was founded about a decade ago, went IPO with a valuation of about 7.5 billion. You know, before our call, I went and looked it up. It's now worth about 1.5 billion. It's not, still not profitable. What lessons would you take from the challenges that they're having? And are they, you know, systemic issues? Is it the way they've approached it? You know, 
how being kind of going into this in the last kind of couple of years, what, what would you take from what they've done? They're in a very different uh, market segment. They're in the Affordable Care Act's marketplace plans, you know, individual mark, uh, plans that are regulated in a very different way. We're in the small to medium-sized employer space, so commercial plans. In commercial plans, you tend to have people for a whole year. You get usually an entire employer's cohort all enrolling at once. So there's some risk pulling. Um, and I think there's more opportunities to do really interesting things in the commercial space. Uh, also, there hasn't been a new entrant into the commercial space in about 30 years. I think Humana was the last company to enter and has recently pulled out. There aren't many industries in, in the US where no one has entered for 30 years. No one's really doing anything innovative. A lot has changed in the last 30 years, right? And I think those innovations are not really being properly used. And I think people's expectation of what it means to be a consumer brand and in the service industry have changed a lot. People expect next day free shipping from Amazon. They tap a button on their phone and they get an Uber. And the experience of, I feel sick, I need healthcare, hasn't kept up with those, those changing expectations. And is actually, I think, deteriorated. I think increased costs, people are expected to pay more. Um, it's a more disjointed experience. Um, and I think there's a growing gap there. And one of the reasons that there's not much innovation in this space is it requires a lot of capital tender. It's a very expensive place to enter. Um, and so it's really hard for innovative companies, small companies, to get into that space. And I think that's where Curative was at a really unique point um, post-COVID, where we had enough capital to enter this market to really underwrite the risk so that if everything went, you know, if we got a group and got lucky and they all got really sick, um, we'd set aside the money to get that um, excellent credit rating and pay for that care. Um but that's certainly not a, a game that um, small startups can play. And the big companies, I just I don't think they're innovative and thinking about the member experience in the same way that the rest of uh, you know, neighboring industries, especially in tech, are. But I do think it's interesting that you're right that probably you're not seeing a lot of you know, United and the like innovating necessarily in this, but you're starting to see industry, creep's not the right word, but industry looking at it, right? And coming at it from different directions. Amazon, obviously CVS bought Anthem uh, a while back. And, you know, I don't know if you'd read the, uh, you know, the next trillion dollar company essay by Andreessen Horowitz and talking about that, you know, the consumer company being, you know, I think the phrase was if United and Apple had a baby. And so one question in that case was, is being an insurance company only enough? If we really want to change healthcare in this, is this is just taking on because we talk like, like it's so convoluted, it's so crazy, right? With PBMs and I, I want to throw all the acronyms. It's going to you know dry the eyes of everybody who's listening out on this, right? But is just taking on you know one aspect of this enough to actually? make the change that you guys are trying to innovate around? It's a great point. No, it's not. And I, from day one, it was never intended to be just the insurance product. It was almost the financial product, really. The intent was to offer more services. And we offer pharmacy um, to our members with same or 
next day uh, deliver meds to their door for zero dollars because we think that is a core part of the experience and if they want to use that service they can they don't have to but it's such a core part and we think that barrier to getting your drugs in a timely manner getting them to your house if you're work from home or um housebound for some reason that's very important so we thought from day one doing pharmacy is really important we've also started doing some primary care and i think the important part about being the payer is you can innovate quite quickly you can spin up um, and acquire services that your members need when you identify systematic gaps in, uh, in what they're getting so it's being the payer is step one doing some part meeting some part of their needs is step two it's a, a ppo plan so members are free to use those million providers in network but we also want to be offer them very competitive offerings that are well integrated um, into our entire system so i came up in my my background has been in the actual products that are being delivered to patients so have a very different kind of relationship with the with the payers right it's a it's a I wouldn't say love hate as much as a you know there are other words that that I would use right and I and I think the biggest challenge in healthcare a lot is not necessarily the innovation of new products we have amazing you know scientists researchers engineers who are creating new things but it's it's the broad diffusion of these innovations I mean just esoteric examples in the healthcare space but you know we have just to get reimbursed for your products. There's, there's these weird coding mechanisms that I'm sure you're very well familiar with, but our audience may not be, but you can create a new product. And if there's not a code, a reimbursement code that it fits under, the chances of your product being easily accepted into the marketplace, it is a massive journey and headache to go do it. And the more novel your product is, the more it doesn't look like something else, which of course means likely it's, could be better, right? The more it doesn't look like something, it could be something uh, drastically novel and innovative, the less likely there is that code. And so how do you think about bringing these better innovations to your members and making them healthier, given this dance that we all play in the current environment? This is one of the reasons we looked at uh, being a pair is the next obvious step for curative because we had seen so many great solutions, great innovations that had really struggled to get traction because the payers are the gatekeepers and their, the current mentality is around as much as possible deterring the use of healthcare to maintain costs. And actually what curative is doing is getting, getting rid of co-pays, getting rid of deductibles, incentivizing early use of preventative care because we believe that in the long term investing in the health of patients is going to be win-win so i think that mindset that alignment with members is a change in the system it's small and i think the difference between a 25 dollar copay and a zero dollar copay it sounds like 25 dollars. it's not it's huge i think it's the difference between i'm going to pause before getting this care and i'm just going to get the care because i, I feel sick and I, I think i need it well there's a difference between the patient paying for something uh, and the copay and the health insurance covering XYZ innovation. Like you, you can, it's on formulary or not. Like those are, those are two very separate, you know, things we're talking about. Well, I, I think that 
if your mentality is that we do not want people to use much healthcare this year to reduce costs versus we want people to use a lot of healthcare this year to reduce costs, you know, moving from mindset A to mindset B means that you're now more open to things where in year one, costs might go up, but you know that that member will stick with you because you were there for them when they needed it and the long-term benefits will benefit you both. So that's really what we're looking to do, get away from this mindset of spiraling costs that year on year, you look for these short-term wins by putting barriers in place and actually look at it the other way around. Like, let's actually try and get people using the right kind of care and be innovative about that, what that right kind of care looks like. I, I think that virtual care and all the different diagnostics that have come out, some of the really interesting drugs that are coming out, I think are very very promising and can be used in conjunction to really change people's lives in, in a very in a very promising direction. But we need a payer community that are going that is going to pull those pieces together and get them to members in a way that is very accessible. You can't I mean it's hard enough just going to the gym, right? You know, or going to the doctor, putting extra barriers in there, giving people reasons not to uh, to do the parental care that they uh, they should be doing it makes it twice as hard and is long term, giving terrible outcomes. You know, the U.S. spends more on healthcare per head than any other uh, large nation. I mean, with a large economy, and has terrible outcomes from it. And it's the basics. Sometimes it's just the basics. It's prenatal visits. It's um, you know, weight management programs. It's all kinds of things that people are being underserved. Well, how do you deal with the Incentive. This is for so for you, your company personally. Incentive structure that, and I don't have the stats in front of me. I'm sure you know them. The average since you're employer based, the average job turnover is whatever X number of years, and so you're going to have that normal that churn. So if you're investing in that preventative long-term care. I know this has been a long, this is, this is not a new problem that the benefits of you investing in that long-term care may accrue to the next insurance company, which has been, I know that's been always the, the, the crux of why it was like, well, why should I invest in the long-term care of patient X? Because I'm actually not going to see the cost benefit of it, which is not a great way to think about it, but I understand it like when you do the financial model, like that concept pencils out. You're right. It's a definite risk. I think this is why a killer member experience is key because if members love the experience, employers will uh, think twice before changing to a, a cheaper plan that makes getting healthcare really hard. It will also help retain really good employees because they don't want to lose the fantastic benefit of a $0 health insurance. So there's some stickiness there from building really good member experience. And I also think that if you get big enough in a market, there's a pretty good chance that they're going to another employer, which you know, is, is a good chance they're with the same carrier. So I could definitely see you know, a board being convinced that it's not worth investing beyond a year and that everything needs to pay off in a year. And I think that's the wrong model. I think that's, that's very much the, the wrong model to be thinking about um, health insurance. I think the other thing is that when we talk about preventative care, some of that stuff, much of that work pays off very fast. And my favorite statistic is around 
the, there was a smoking ban in um, my home country in Scotland. They, uh, they banned smoking in pubs and clubs. And I think within nine months saw a significant drop in the number of heart attacks going to the, the emergency room. And we don't think that if I smoke today in nine months or if I'm exposed to secondhand smoke today, in nine months time, I'll have a heart attack. But there are these, um, these large, you know, across large populations, you do see these, um, these short-term benefits from getting people in care. And when it comes to things like drug adherence, you're staying on your medication or um, getting uh, escalated so you can get in to see a specialist for a situation before it worsens, those are clear cases where if you get ahead of them and those issues, you can avoid very expensive emergency room visits and hospital stays. And that's where I think the care navigator is part of it, the zero dollar copay is part of it, the baseline visit is a part of it. But altogether, it's about building fantastic member experiences that invest in people's health and long term will reduce costs for employers trying to offer great benefits. I think that's a perfect segue to talk about a couple of kind of recent innovations that are in the news and kind of think about how you guys are approaching them. So I think one that obviously everybody's talking about right now is like Ozempic, Wegvo, like the the obesity drugs that for the first time actually work, right? Like these are amazing innovations. And it's funny, so I was in San Diego when, uh, you know, Bieta first came out, which is like the, the first real GLP-1 and that they thought there was some possibility this could have weight loss. And it's it's amazing to see, I think basically this is like, you know, version three of this drug and the stuff that's already coming down the pipeline with, I think Eli Lilly has a, uh, you know, an oral version in, in phase three. So it's here and it's, it's, what is amazing to me is we've known forever, right? Like eat well, diet, exercise is the way to go. And we've been yelling about that for decades. And we have a new possibility. We have something that actually works. We have something that, that has real, real potential here. And it's getting better, as I said, with, with you know, version four or five. And so, you know, and I will say that I've talked to lots of people in, in the business and in different places. And the, the first mortality, like, oh, my God, well, it's so expensive. We can't do this. And the last thing I'll say for us, and I'm sure you were this data that, you know, there was, I think it was like the star trial or sort of the NASP, like where they saw, you know, a 20% decrease in cardiovascular risk, which of course, if anybody would say like, oh, if people lost a lot, a considerable amount of weight, they had less cardiovascular risk. Like didn't know we needed a 17,000 person trial to show that, but you know, we all have to, you know, show that. So I'm very curious how, you know, how curative is, is approaching these things, this, uh, this class of drugs. These drugs are, I think, very exciting. And I think with each generation, they're showing improvements. Um, costs are coming down, hopefully, for the effect that they have. And we're, we're freaking out uh, dosing and other pro- support programs to go along with them um, to have long-term effect. I, I don't think any one of these drugs is for everyone. And I think some people um, will find one that's right for them. And some of them will actually find long-term success with some of the more traditional methods as well. I think, you know, um, uh, peer support or um, nutrition programs aren't going to go away because of these drugs. I think these drugs help people get started on their journey. If you look at the stock prices of a lot of these companies, they're, uh, they've all tanked. So uh, it's not necessarily the market thinks. Sure. I, I mean, 
Zoom looked like it was going to be the best stock ever uh, sometime in 2020. Right. I think the stock market has a, has a short-term view of things, and, and I think we'll realize that. I'll grant you that. <laughs> these, these are very important drugs that we can add to our arsenal and you know, making people aware of all their options and getting them trying the right combination of things there, I think is going to be very important. I think this comes back to you know the, the role of the, the payer because the payer is one of the people that if you spend a lot of money on these programs, and uh, drug programs included, you can see a long-term benefit in cost. And I don't, uh, you know, and I think that's where, the, again, the payer mindset has to be about we're investing in your health because we understand that long-term it, it benefits both of us. And I think one of the reasons we're seeing some dissonance is that if you think you only have a member for six months and every program has to pay for itself in six months, these things don't make sense. And I think that's where, where Curative's mindset is these fit nicely into that, that program that um, for, for some people, these are the right things to do and we should um, make them available, make them aware of their options. Um, so that, uh, I think very exciting for us. So they are on formulary? We do cover them for some people. I'm not sure about the exact criteria, but they're there along with uh, Weight Watchers and I think Noom and a few other programs that we have. Um, and, and one of the roles of the Care Navigators is to make sure that people are aware of these programs, getting into them, you know, reporting on how they're doing and, and letting us know if they want to try something different. I'm just curious from your perspective, and I, if you don't have the exact data in front of you, for something like this, is your perspective... When you said for you guys are setting up for some patients and some not, are you setting it more from a medical criteria like, okay, if you're BMI or whatever metric you're using, it's right for you? Or is it more a last line of like, okay, you've tried these five different things. And now after showing you've done the level of effort, we'll, we'll put you on that. Because I think it's a very different mindset, you know, when we think about it of, which we're going to put you on. Yeah, and I can't speak the exact criteria uh, for the GLP ones here, but we we have clinical guidance committees that regularly review the latest evidence and cost demonstrated which populations this is right for, what kind of benefit they can expect, weighs all those things together and decides the the criteria. I you know I, I think we have to remember that can't let drug companies come up with any number and we'll just pay it. And, you know, you know if, you, if you want to lose five pounds taking a $5,000 drug isn't maybe the first thing you should do. It's not in your interests and, um, and it's not in your employer's or your long-term interests if, if every year costs go out of control and next year your premium gets doubled and co-pays and deductibles are back. No one wants that. I do think we have to be, you know, responsible stewards of the, uh, the financial stability of the plan. So... But at the same time, a lot of people can clearly benefit from having some more support in, in weight loss. And so, you know, maybe not everyone's on the $5,000 drug. Maybe you offer the $500 drug to a lot of people. That's the exciting thing about the competition. It's not this one, one wonder drug here, but there's a whole, there's a whole bunch. And, and there's clear evidence that you know, there's a trend where we're beginning to have some real breakthroughs into how to use these to help people achieve weight loss that they really, really struggled with. The fact that we finally have a class and a direction to go and everybody sees that this potential, yeah, we're, we're quickly going to have 20, 30, you know, in this direction and that competition is going to be good. 
I want to take now an innovation at the the other side, much more on the kind of preventative side, where we've seen this growth in the cancer liquid biopsy, you know, with with Grail and Freenome, where this is the early stage testing. So for kind of the uh, the audience says, no, we have now early stage blood tests um, that were came out a couple of years ago, where you can actually take a blood test. And I'd say more on stage two, it's getting, you know, they're getting better, but the where they're heading towards is we can take a blood test and detect stage zero one cancer. I don't think we're quite at that yet, but we're, they're iterating quickly. And the point being is, and this is what I, they call, you know, the, the, one of the big ones here, Grail, it was the holy grail of cancer detection. If you can detect cancer at stage zero, it's eminently curable. I don't care what it is, right? Because that was the whole, that was always the problem. And, you know, it is available today. They are uh, approved. I know that, you know, I, obviously I, I come from uh, the gentleman's where I worked at Illumina, which Grail was a spin out of, and there's all this controversy. Now they try to buy it back and FTC and all this sort of stuff. But I know that there's been a lot of discussion about coverage and the like, and that, that's exactly the, it'd be interesting to see kind of your take on it because that is exactly kind of preventative, right? If you, if everybody's taking it, then in theory, they'll be catching the cancers really early and decreasing the cost later on. I think off the top of my head, I don't obviously know the negotiated rates, but you know the cash rates, it's a, it's a thousand dollars a test. How are you guys kind of approaching the, these types of tests? I think there's it's another space where it's really now becoming uh, very close to being very easy to justify for for larger groups of patients. But the I mean the trends in in sequencing prices they keep dropping, and there was people for ten years people thought we'd hit the bottom, or five years people thought we'd hit the bottom. And Illumina just came out with their latest generation of sequencing machines, which you know. Uh, 10x reduction in price or something so or 5x and i think that's really uh really exciting that the hundred dollar genome is in sight right if that thousand can can become 200 i think that that's huge i think you know average spend in the us on on healthcare is in like five thousand to ten thousand per person per year on premiums so you don't want to spend too much of that on any one preventative test but for certain populations where cancer is um, a real risk, then these things make a lot of sense. So I, I, I think we're beginning to see that window open. So I, I think we'll, we'll watch that space closely. It's interesting, even when you can, you and I are very excited by these technologies, but how excited we have about having our blood tests taken. And, and if you're having multiple tests done, uh, you know, a lot of blood taken might be a challenge. So uptake might actually be limited by the mode of testing. And I think you'll probably have greater uptake with people who've had a cancer scare or had cancer in their family for those reasons. But I, I do think they're another, just another um, a demonstration of, of how technology is, is now coming out with real tests that will impact large numbers of people. I don't know. I think the, obviously right now, the gap, I think, between uptake, right, is coverage. Because, you know, my wife and I are planning on starting this year to get it annually because we can afford, you know, to do it cash because it's important to us. But there's not a lot of people that can do that. And so it's an interesting question on the coverage. We talked, we've said, like, you want people to be able to go get these types of tests and be able to go get preventative. 
and remove these types of barriers. So it becomes back to our question about, you know, the diffusion of innovation, the diffusion of these types of preventative measures and moving from the sick care to the health care. And it becomes this question of how does the health insurance companies partner with these types of things? I, I see the problem that the health insurance companies have, right? Like it's that, you know, it is a, you give a pool of money, right? And you don't want to be just blowing it on. And, and the, you said like, they, they, taking it was epic. Like, I want to lose five pounds. Can you please cover this for me? It's like, well, no, if you weigh, you know, if, if you're perfectly healthy and you want to lose five pounds, you have a bank account, go get it. Right. Like hey, that's fine. You know, that, that there's, you know, versus if you weigh 300 pounds, I'm sorry, telling you to diet and exercise is probably not going to work. And if I want to save your life, we're going to do this. Right. So understanding there are proper cases for all of these things, but this is this preventative side is an interesting one, right? Where it says it really should be the people who can afford it. This is, I think, one of the reasons that I'm so excited about the baseline visit, because one of the challenges here for doctors is that when they see a patient, they don't know what is covered. Is this an insurance company that's really trying to invest in the health of, of the patient in front of me? Or do they have an insurance company that's going to fight me on everything? I have 20 minutes with this patient. I'm not going to spend 20 minutes trying to figure out what the insurance company covers. I'll do the basics, the stuff that's covered by everyone, and we'll move on to the next patient. Right. The baseline visit is an opportunity for us to really see if they're using the benefits to their maximum, if they use them last year, or, or th- you know, talking through with the patient things they might want to use this year, and then handing off to the care navigator to make sure that there's follow through. So where a Zempic might be an option for a patient or where they might be um, eligible for liquid biopsy, uh, for grail test, for uh, cancer de- early cancer detection, um, making sure that they understand that and making sure that the care navigator can then help them get that. Because, you know, you and I can probably figure out how to find a liquid biopsy because we know it's a thing, but even then it's probably a challenge to find a doctor who is well-versed in this and you probably have to go to an area that's quite affluent and regularly has people paying out of pocket for liquid biopsies um, without any symptoms that would indicate that they're appropriate for it. So I think that baseline visit, find gaps in care, um, help connect people so they can go to their, their PCP with the right content. Here's a letter from my insurance company saying they'll, they'll cover this if you want to order it. Um, you know, I made this, you know, having the care navigator help set up that appointment. Those are really exciting for me because simply putting things in the small print of a benefits booklet isn't the same as making sure people get the right preventative drugs. And I think that's the gap that insurance companies have been hitting that they think we've adjusted our benefit. And I went on a podcast and told the host about how good our benefit was. It's like, yeah, but how many people on your plan are actually using that? And I think that's the challenge. And that's why Cure has done a great job with engagement. 98% of people choose to complete that baseline visit. Something like 85% of people register for our portal and log back on. I think you know, we are showing that with a different approach to healthcare, you can engage members and that engagement, you can then lead to better outcomes. And we are beginning to see that now with better drug adherence, as well as lower costs per member on drugs. And, you know, really showing that on some of our early markers for, you know, diabetes, pre-diabetes, that we're doing really good jobs of, of getting them engaged in early programs um, because it's not enough just to put it in the benefit booklet, right? It, it's about follow through. 
No, and, and all of this, it gets back to all these stuff, whether it's an innovation in technology, it's an innovation in a model, an innovation in any of these things. If, you know, if no one knows about it, whether, you know, if it's in, in tiny fine print, like it doesn't get out there, it doesn't, doesn't used, then what good is the innovation? Right. So I want to pivot kind of one last time as we're kind of near it. So my understanding is that Trudev wasn't founded in Austin, but you decided all to move here. Why? Great city. We uh, started in LA with the first lab. Our second lab, we opened in uh, DC and our, our third, we chose Austin. We did a lot of COVID testing and vaccinations um, around Austin. And it became a place that we worked really well, local communities. Um, it's an exciting city with, you know, that's growing with a lot of tech. And when we looked at where to launch our health plan, we looked at sort of all the big metropolitan areas and, and Austin definitely came out as the most, uh, the most exciting place. It's an interesting mix of the right regulatory environment. It's growing very fast. It's got some tech companies. It's got some manufacturing. It's got all kinds of interesting employers that looking for good benefits and competitive benefits to retain members um, and a growing population and evolving healthcare scene, I think was the right match for us. Having launched in Austin now, I think absolutely was the right decision. And expanding from there across Texas is, is going really well. Isaac, this has been a lot of fun. I always end with the same question. What's next, Austin? We want to bring better benefits to, to more Austinites. You know, I think expanding our footprint and, and getting the message out so that they can have $0 coverage. And also, in January, I'll be running the Austin Half Marathon and it cools down a bit. You don't want to run that in 105 degree heat? I've tried running in that heat. It's uh, it's quite something. Isaac, thank you so much for joining the Austin Next podcast. Thanks, Jason. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher. Leave us a review and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.